This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan, and this is episode 22 of Empires and Mercenaries, part two. story of the Eastern Roman Empire's own Reconquista of sorts, this time of Sicily. George Maniakes had conquered pretty much the entire eastern part of the island and was setting his sights on the rest, starting with the incredibly important port city of Palermo on its north shore, the jugular, so to speak, of a full conquest. However, there is one more major site to take before this. In any war, it's crucial to cut off paths of resupply, and the southeastern port city of Syracuse was just that path. Saracens from northern Africa used Syracuse as a place to continually supply the resistance. What Manaikis didn't know was the real effect of leading a siege of Syracuse. A man would rise from impressive sellsword to legend in a matter of minutes. Just as emperors despise a highly successful general, generals despise a highly successful soldier. Today, we continue our talk of empires and mercenaries. I hope you enjoy the show. Standing outside the impregnable walls and fortifications of Syracuse, George Maniakes was beyond frustrated. It was the year 1038, and the high, sizzling Sicilian sun blazed overhead, which did nothing to bring the general's internal temperature down. His temper was as legendary as his command. After some time, Maniakes sat his forces back just outside the walls of Syracuse to ponder. Every so often, he would test the city's defenses, only to find that the Saracens were very smart in their approach to a siege. Instead of allowing the opponent to gather worthwhile intelligence on its defenses by keeping everything in place, the emir of Syracuse chose to move around its defenses, thus stifling any intelligence Maniakes could get. And after weeks of the siege, the Byzantine forces were just beginning to rest on their heels a bit, when, out of nowhere... The doors opened and a massive force of Saracens rushed out screaming, their eyes red with intensity and ready to end this siege and possibly the entire Byzantine effort in Sicily. Maniakes, a man who simply isn't outmaneuvered or in a position to be surprised, he was shell-shocked by the audacity of his opponent. Everywhere he looked, his army was being struck down. He was simply caught unawares. As he was ordering a full retreat, a pullback to the hills a few miles away to take a comprehensive body count and resource check, something astonishing happened below. His Norman mercenaries were being run over in the middle, but one night, his helmet gleaming in the bright Sicilian sunlight, could be seen quickly making his 
way through the Saracen forces. This man cut down every foe who approached him with lethal speed and ruthlessness. His legs moved him forward toward well, toward the emir himself, sitting astride his horse, barking orders to his men in all directions. Before anyone knew what had happened, this knight ran at full speed in a suit of armor, sword held back, striking the emir with such ferocity that he nearly cut the Saracen leader, literally, in half. There was a pause in the battle. A Norman knight, his chest heaving, his eyes looking around ready for another fight, standing over the emir of Syracuse. And leaderless, the Syracuse immediately retreated back behind the walls of the city. It was in this moment a legend was born. This Norman knight was not one of the Drango brothers, or any of the unnamed Normans on the battlefield that day. This knight was none other than William de Hauteville. It was William, not George Maniakes, who saved the day and quite possibly the entire Byzantine invasion. That day, under the hot and humid blue skies of Sicily, William de Hauteville became William Ironarm, or in his native Norman tongue, Guillaume Bras du Fer. With Syracuse surrendering within days, Maniakes was excited to get the rest of this invasion started. He had the Saracens exactly where he needed them, terrified at the unstoppable Byzantine force under his control. From his leadership, to Harold Sigurdsson and the Varangian Guard, and from the sheer size of the force, to glimpses of individual heroes like William Ironarm within the ranks, there really was no sense in putting up much of a resistance, although there would be some holdouts that would stick around for quite a while, but those were mainly in the western part of the island. Maniakes' victory over Sicily was in reality partly completed, but the Saracen forces were so devastated, and every major port but Palermo was conquered, so the court back in Constantinople pretty much called it a win. Maniakes left garrisons across the eastern half of the island while he headed back with the main contingency to the mainland. It was here that the general became restless and began causing a stir with the local Lombards, a man like Maniakes isn't one to stay in camp and wait on a fight. Constantinople recalled him as a way to ease tensions in Apulia and the already rebellious Calabria. A year after victory was declared in Sicily in 1040, with Maniakes gone, Saracens saw an opportunity. They quickly mustered up support from Carthaginians and North African Berbers, alike, and sent forces to begin the reconquest of Sicily. This showed the inherent weakness of the garrisons, and the Muslim forces soon took back much of Maniakes' hard-won territory. It also showed the miscalculation of the elite in Constantinople. They thought they were cooling off a rambunctious and beloved general, but they really exposed the empire's weak presence in the western Mediterranean, which of course only raised the towering general's ire beyond repair, some would say. However, Maniakes' temper was bound to catch up to him at some point. After he returned and began making quick work of the Saracens in the eastern part of the island, three things happened. First, Maniakes ordered a Lombard, a respected leader named Arduin, who was loyal to Prince Guillemar IV of Salerno, first to give up his horse. 
Arduin refused, and in response, Maniakes had the man stripped naked and beaten to within an inch of his life. In response, hundreds of Lombards defected. They just up and left with their spoils, sans one horse, of course, leaving Maniakes with an army comprised of some really great warriors now questioning their loyalties. In addition to Arduin's treatment, William sent a delegation to Maniakes requesting a renegotiation of the distribution of the spoils of each battle. They sent a minor Norman knight who gave Maniakes the message. Maniakes had the man whipped, thrown over the back of his horse, and returned to William. And that was as far as William and the Normans were willing to go for their employer. They packed up and left shortly after the Lombard mercenaries did. And then... Then there is Stephen. In this second incident after the Battle of Troina in 1040, Maniakes once again, as this was hardly the first time, showed his public disgust and distrust of Stephen. See, Stephen was the brother-in-law of John the Eunuch, who was pretty much the emperor, while Michael IV, also a brother-in-law of Stephen, was learning, well, he was learning how to be an emperor. Other than that, Stephen had zero reason to be put in charge of a lemonade stand, let alone an imperial navy. He was weak-willed and an entirely inexperienced military leader in every sense of the word. Basically, he's exactly the type of person that Maniakes grew up pulverizing on the playground. Maniakes formulated a foolproof plan that would pinch the Saracen forces between his army on land and the navy at the port of Troina on Sicily's north coast. Stephen was to pull into port and block any Saracen escape, while his forces would drive them in Stephen's direction. Just outside Traina, Maniakes would make quick work of the enemy and most likely defeat any future resistance. Well, Stephen didn't much like Maniakes at this point, and he chose to leave the general high and dry. Needless to say, Maniakes did his job, but the Saracens were able to escape to fight another day. Well, naturally, the two discussed the matter shortly afterward. The two military commanders disagreed, but from all accounts of the discussion, it went rather politely. Maniakes said he apologized for all the the ill treatment he had been giving Stephen in recent uh, months. They shook hands and promised to support one another in the future. Well, for both their sakes, that's probably what should have happened. But we all know George Maniakes by now. In addition to insults in front of the entire army, the general open palm slapped Stephen's face multiple times and then pushed him to the ground, punching and kicking him to the point where Stephen was begging him to stop in front of everybody. Instead of accepting Stephen's pleas, Maniakes grabbed a nearby whip and whipped him like he was no better than a lame beast of burden and finally ended it by dragging the little man. Remember, Maniakes was an absolute giant and tossing him face-first in the mud. Stephen was forced to stand up and stumble away, head down, thoroughly humiliated. Those same Saracens, it was discovered, sailed back to northern Africa, gained fresh resources, supplies, and men, and returned to Sicily, anchoring in Syracuse. Maniakes wanted to finish the job that was left unfinished at Traina, thanks in large part to Stephen. For Stephen, though, that was it. Whether it was deserved or not, he'd had enough. He wrote Constantinople to his brother-in-law John, 
and accused Maniaches of treason. This was exactly the kind of charge Emperor Michael IV was waiting for, because disposing of a beloved general without just cause never sat well with an adoring public. Treason, though? That was an opportunity he just couldn't pass up. As Maniaches boarded for Constantinople to face the emperor about his behavior, a man named Basil, not Basil II, was sent as a replacement. And Basil was like Stephen in so many ways, completely ineffectual and of little merit. Maniaches' Sicilian victory was without question, dead in the water. It was at this moment when William, Rainulf, and the rest of the hundreds of Normans finally decided that the leave was the right move. Here in 2020, we all know full well what difference a few months can do to our plans, but, but even Maniakes had to admit that 1040 was by far his worst year. To find yourself at the top of the world at one point, only to wake up mere months afterwards in a Byzantine prison, yes, prison, which is where he was quietly thrown the moment he, was, he arrived in Constantinople, well, few others in history share such a dramatic collapse. Upon returning to Calabria on the mainland, a year or so after his accomplishment at Syracuse, William Ironarm found that his feet had traveled far and wide and he was greeted at first like a hero wherever he went. However, this would soon wear off, but, but not due to anything his adorers did. When William returned loaded with war booty and stories of his greatness, he looked around and saw exactly what Rainulf Drango saw two decades earlier. Wealth meant nothing if it wasn't kept on privately owned land. William could continue to amass wealth by playing various sides against each other. But why wait? He could create an army at will with his newfound fame, and the Romans were on their knees, stretched far too thin, with two bumbling bureaucrats at the head of the army and navy, and its juggernaut of a general sitting in some prison back east. Strike while the iron was hot. Taking advantage of old rivalries in the region, William instigated a fight between the rebellious Lombards and the Romans in Apulia. As he swept across the hills of southern Italy, William found himself ushered in like a celebrity when he arrived at Bari. Over the next several months, William had collected a number of loyal Lombard towns and ports and farming communities, a place so lush, Apulia is, and fertile, that it was already being called Fat Apulia, as it's still known today. In a nearby field that still bore the scars and whispered the echoes of a devastating battle, over a thousand years earlier, the legendary Carthaginian general Hannibal earned one of the ancient world's greatest military upsets. This was Cannae, and it was here where William was lured by the Byzantine governor of Apulia for a showdown. But it wasn't just a sore spot for Romans, see. If you remember, Ranulf Drango and his Norman and Lombard forces were also pretty handily defeated there in the, in the 1020s. According to Lars Brownworth, it was just 10 Normans who walked away from that battle. 10. Rainolf and his brothers being among them. But if you remember, not all of them. Gilbert Drango fell in the field that day. But Normans didn't exactly seem like the type to get spooked by history. And Maniakes was still absent. It's said that the Normans marching across Apulia was sending chills down Michael's spine back in Constantinople, and he was ready to release the, the despised general and return him to Italy to settle this whole thing once and for all. However, the court outmaneuvered Michael by pulling up something that had happened in the past. 
Years earlier, while all those land grabs were happening around the empire, Maniakes was getting his too. In fact, Maniakes would get his along with many others around him, one being an aristocrat with connections to the capital named Romanus Sclerus, who alleged Maniakes was spilling over onto his territory. Maniakes' temper boiled over once again, and he beat Romanus to within an inch of his life. Many years later, while Maniakes was conquering Sicily, Romanus Sclerus struck, and he struck hard. He ran raids on Maniakes' property and holdings, stealing an immeasurable amount of wealth. He torched the farms and the pasture lands, and he even seduced the man's wife. If that wasn't a complete one-up on the great George Maniakes, he tore the general's reputation down in Constantinople at every turn, to the point that even Michael couldn't unlock the cell doors. So, William was facing another inept bureaucrat on the field of battle, but a night or two before hostilities were set to begin, that governor sent a messenger to meet and offer peace with William. Cantering into the Norman camp, this messenger spoke with an air of superiority that, well, you can imagine didn't quite set well with the, de with the descendants of Vikings. A lone Norman knight emerged from, from the listening crowd and made a beeline toward the man who was talking. Brownworth narrates the rest perfectly, so I'll defer to him here. This man, quote, struck the horse in the forehead. The stunned animal instantly crumpled to the ground, throwing its rider. As one group of soldiers grabbed the diplomat, another seized the horse and threw it off a cliff. They then shook the petrified man to his feet, provided him with another mount, and told him to stop wasting their time with words. Go back to your emperor, they said, and tell him the Normans are ready to fight. End quote. Within months, William had amassed victories there in Kenai, which included the Varangian Guards, still led by Harold Sigurdsson, and two more there in Apulia, earning William immeasurable wealth and fame. And at long last, Michael was finally able to safely spring Maniakes from prison and send him to Italy. And no doubt Maniakes knew of William Ironarm quite well, since, well, since this is the Norman who had upstaged him at Syracuse. Upon arrival, Maniakes, fresh from months stewing on his turn of fortune, unleashed the type of hell that comes from a man with nothing to lose at this point. He had been humiliated at the top of his game by two men who were by far his inferiors, that is, Stephen and Romanus Sclerus. His hatred spewed forth like lava burning every field who did not instantly bow, every village who had harbored rebels or rebellious sensibilities, and every man, woman, or child who said one word against the empire. Brownworth writes, quote, Dissidents were crucified, women were raped, and children were buried up to their necks and left to die. End quote. It was unwavering brutality, and merciless justice in a way only George Maniakes could execute. Apulia crumbled to its knees in his wake. But, as before, when Maniakes was getting things done in Italy, his detractors back in Constantinople couldn't resist watching him squirm, especially one Romanus Sclerus, who had risen in the ranks in the years since he had stolen the general's wife. He had convinced the court to pull Maniakes back once again, at the man's highest moment, but this time, he bit off more than he could chew. Romanus Sclerus decided to deliver the recall in person, 
This, of course, would be a colossal mistake. So, yeah, um, as soon as Romanus Scaleros arrived, Maniakes wasted no time. He grabbed Romanus by the throat and had each orifice of the man's pitiful head stuffed full with horse manure. And if that wasn't enough, the man was slowly tortured to death in nothing short of a grisly manner. The whole time Scleros was grasping for life, Maniakes was announcing in no uncertain terms for all around him who was watching his real thoughts on the emperor and the royal court. As as Scleros took his last painful, pitiful breaths, Maniakes declared his intentions to ride on the capital and take it by force. In fact, George Maniakes went so far as to proclaim himself emperor of the Eastern Roman Empire itself and gathered his forces, pulled them out of Apulia, promising to return one day to mop up those upstart Normans, and he sailed back to the Croatian port of Zara. With the Byzantines abruptly gone, there was a power vacuum left in Apulia and Calabria, though local governors and Roman nobility still claimed superiority. The Normans were a rowdy bunch, and no one really controlled them as a group. They were knights, plain and simple, one not any more superior than the next, according to the unofficial Norman code shared between them. But they needed guidance, one central person whom they respected to at least lead in battle. The natural choice was, of course, the hero of Syracuse, the only man to one-up the great George Maniakes. They all voted William de Hauteville as their de facto commander. It was this move that positioned William as not only the nominal Count of Apulia, but also a part of the Italian nobility. It was soon after that he married the niece of the Prince of Salerno, becoming a part of the Lombard court. William then divided Apulia among twelve of his most trusted and loyal Norman knights, and Melfi would be a neutral zone for all. Outside Melfi, though, Drogo de Hauteville was given Venosa, and Ascleton Drengo received Acarenza, to name a couple. And in 1043, Drogo was officially declared William's heir by the Holy Roman Emperor Henry III. Apulia wasn't enough, though. It was also in 1043 that Maniakes' rebellion hit its peak. It lasted about as long as his soldiers' chance proclaiming their general emperor. This rebel army it's good to note, also consisted of Harold Sigurdsson's Varangian Guard. Somewhere near Thessaloniki in modern-day Greece, Maniakes met his death after receiving an injury in the minor skirmish there. Without their legendary leader, the rebelling force immediately surrendered. Afterward, the shamed rebellion was marched back to Constantinople and were forced to sit astride donkeys backward, which is the ultimate medieval walk of shame for a warrior. After this, eternal shame aside, all was pretty much forgiven. But the rebellion marked another dark low point for the empire, a time when a master of warfare and leader of men, who once brought tremendous glory to the realm, was brought down by treachery and hubris. George Maniakes was a towering giant, both figuratively and literally. Members of the court of Constantinople used prestige and wealth as a social measuring stick, but the general awed and cowed them into acceptance. Armies shuddered at the mere mention of his name. Brownworth states that he was, quote, 
larger than life in nearly every respect, end quote. And that he, quote, had a reputation as imposing as his physique, end quote. The 12th century historian Michael Sellis described him like this, quote, his height was shy of three meters, and to look at him, people had to lift their eyes as if they were looking at the top of a hill or a high mountain. His manners were not soft or pleasant, but reminiscent of a storm. His voice sounded like thunder, and his hands seemed to be able to tear down walls or break bronze doors. He could jump like a lion, and his frown was terrible, and everything else in him was excessive. Those who saw him found any description of him that they had heard to be an understatement. End quote. George Maniakes stood heads above his contemporaries in many regards, and it is a pretty safe bet that, minus that mixture of pride and courtly interference to undermine him at every turn, he would have most likely, given the history of such figures, made a successful play to the throne of the empire. He is one of history's many humbling reminders that any one of us can be cut down in our prime for any reason. Who knows what history would have had in store for George Maniakes? Having been a town leader and then regional governor, would he have simply focused on strengthening, strengthening the economy, infrastructure, and peasantry of the empire while reining in the despised nobility? Having won his first bit of acclaim fighting against the Saracens in the east, would he have settled into his palace at Constantinople and set his sights on reclaiming the eastern empire's claims to the Holy Land? Having come so close to driving out the Saracens twice before, only to be pulled back in the waning days of the campaigns, would he have led his soldiers and his Varangians once again in Sicily and reclaimed it for Rome once and for all? And having vanquished the people who humiliated him in Constantinople, would he have personally led the extermination of those upstart Normans and their wannabe hero, William Ironarm? We can only speculate the fact remains George Maniakes was dead by 1043 and would henceforth remain one of history's grandest what-ifs. So the next year, in 1044, William and Drogo began plans for a conquest of Calabria alongside the Prince Guyamar IV of Salerno. To be clear, it was less of a choice for the brothers as part of the proceedings of gaining an autonomous foothold and subsequent kingdom in Italy requires certain temporary sacrifices to be made. One being, in exchange for land and title and noble connections, William accepted vassalage under Salerno. This was a way for Guyamar to oust the Roman presence from southern Italy, not necessarily William's next step, but he, out of a sense of duty, supported his overlord. They launched the invasion into Calabria in 1044 and were defeated near Taranto in 1045. And shortly after this, where we see the legend of William Ironarm, eldest of the Italian Hopevilles, meet his untimely death at the age of 36 from a fever in 1046. And it was then that Drogo de Hauteville, still fighting alongside his famous brother, assumed his brother's holdings and title as Count of Apulia, and another brother named Humphrey de Hauteville took over William's land holdings elsewhere. It was at this point that another set of Hautevilles decided to stop listening to the stories coming back from Italy 
and start on their own quest to match or exceed their older brothers. They weren't by any means welcome, though, as Drogo had made abundantly clear his thoughts toward his stepmother, Fresenda, and her kids were lumped in that same boat as she. Robert, first of Tancred and Fresenda, would make his way to southern Italy, and he would find an older brother who couldn't get rid of him fast enough. Drogo ordered Robert and a small contingent of, a small contingent of knights to head into the wilds of Calabria, still by all accounts a backwater and uncivilized place as it was mostly mountains and hills unsuitable for farming. Robert found innumerable hardships on his adventures to quell the Calabrians, but he also began amassing a collection of admirable stories himself. In Calabria, Robert the Norman met heavy resistance by a largely Greek population, as Calabria had been a part of the Eastern Roman Empire for quite some time already. But if Robert was anything, he was clever. Robert was a survivor, too. Robert, on the one hand, a fox, and on the other, a rat. But stupid was simply not something people used to describe him. I hope you enjoyed today's episode on the Norman conquest of southern Italy and Sicily. Please keep sharing this podcast with those you know and your social media accounts. Don't forget to tag us too if you share us on Twitter, at Wheel Podcast, or drop a quick line about the latest episode on Facebook, Fortune's Wheel Podcast. I'd love to hear from you. Also, you can email the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com. And please consider supporting the show on Patreon if you're so inclined. On the next episode, the Hotevilles will make major plays to unbalance the hierarchy on the Italian peninsula. Two Hotevilles rise to the occasion, while another waits impatiently in the wings for his chance. Next week, the Norman conquest of southern Italy and Sicily continues with the origin stories of two legendary medieval knights. I can't wait to tell you about it.